After taking a few weeks off, we're going to be picking up where we left off in 1 Corinthians. And I'm excited because the next four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve Sunday on that Lord's Day, we're going to be spending all four weeks in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. All concerning not only the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but even more pointedly concerning our own resurrection in His likeness. It's what the Apostle Paul refers to elsewhere as our blessed hope of the appearing of Christ and of us appearing with Him in glory. And so I think it's, as you preach through any book of the Bible, there's always going to be places that you want to speed up and strum, and there are other places where you need to slow down and you need to pick a little bit. You need to draw out a number of the notes in order to be able to better understand the message, not only of the passage themselves, but of the whole book. 1 Corinthians 15 is a key chapter to understanding the entire book. Now, when we first started our, our series together in 1 Corinthians, I posed the question, what would you understand to be of greatest importance in a church? What is most important? I wonder what many people would say. They might say, perhaps it's the children's ministry, perhaps it's the kind of music and instrumentation that makes them feel emotionally engaged, that they might be able to worship God and feel like they're, quote-unquote, entering into His presence. I wonder if it's the faithful preaching of the Word or a good children's ministry, a good youth ministry, whatever it may be. There are all kinds of things that we designate as being not only important, but if we're being honest with ourselves, essential to being part of this church or that church. Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is saying, is going to be reminding this church and reminding us what it is that's ultimately of first importance. And that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ centered on His death and resurrection, full stop. Now, we'll get to that in just a minute. But as we come to this chapter, I want to recall the previous 14 chapters because there are a number of people who would look at the church today and say, you know what, the problem with the modern church is that we are not enough like that early church, like the first century church, like the New Testament church. And there's many ways in which they would probably be right. We need to always be conforming ourselves to Scripture. But I hope to some degree you might be impressed that over the course of 14 chapters that the reality is, is that we're a whole lot more like the early church than we want to admit. That here it is, it's a church that's caught in tribalism and worship wars, that's caught in sexual immorality and the tolerance of sin in their midst. It's a church that's, that's trying to navigate the challenges that come with marriage and divorce and singleness. That there's an abuse of gifts, that there's the exaltation of some saints over the others, such that there's varsity Christians and junior varsity Christians. Love is often lacking but what wasn't lacking at all was the self-exalting spirit that comes with wanting to be one of those special Christians in the church. No, I think there's many ways in which when we look at the letter that Paul wrote to this church, we find we are much more like the early church than we are wont to admit. Which is why Paul's message of first importance is so important. And just consider, for instance, 
that here we're entering a chapter on the tail end of what seems like one pastoral rebuke after another, of all of the things that I've mentioned. And now we're getting to the end of the letter, and what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't stop and reverse engineer the letter and say, okay, now let me tell you everything that you need to be doing in return. This is what he says in light of one rebuke after another. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. What is it that this church needs in the midst of all of its messiness, in the midst of all of its sin? What is it that this church needs to hear in the wake of being confronted with the reality of their own failings, their own frailty? What do they need to know? They need to be reminded of something. They need to be reminded of the gospel. Is that not the case for us? (laughs) Is this message not a message for us? We can never be reminded of the gospel enough, and that's what the Apostle Paul is doing, that some error had crept into the church, we'll get to that in the coming weeks, and he's trying to get them centered, grounded, standing firm on the very gospel that they were brought by God's grace to repent and to believe in when Paul showed up in their town a handful of years earlier. With all that in mind, just listen now to the reading of God's Word 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless, of course, you've believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as one untimely born, He also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Amen. There's been all kinds of sermons that I've listened to through the years on these handful of verses, and perhaps you have too. Oftentimes, I've heard this passage preached as a kind of apologetic for the proof of Christ's bodily resurrection. And there's something, I think, right about that. There are many in our own day that would deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. There's many radical, liberal theologians that would say, well, Christ, though perhaps He was an historical person, could not have possibly been raised from the dead. They would deny all kinds of supernatural things. Rather, He was probably, He swooned. Or He's still in a grave somewhere. And the disciples, well, they must have hallucinated. Well, here we have one, two, three, four, five hundred plus people all having the same hallucinations. 
11 of the 12 original disciples, all willing to lay down their own lives for the truth of a hallucination? I remember back in the day, a long time ago, when I was a first Christian, when I was a Christian, a man by the name of Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, wrote a book on the resurrection of Christ. And he helped us kind of remember some of the key aspects of the resurrection, its historical factuality with this acronym, F-E-A-T. It's a feat. God accomplished it, F-E-A-T. Fatal torment that there was no way that the Lord Jesus Christ in the hands of professional uh, executioners would have ever just simply swooned or passed out from low blood pressure, as some contend. It was, he was fatally tormented unto death. That he was buried, but then there was an empty tomb. No one has been able to find him. Even in our own scriptural accounts, some accused the disciples of moving the body, which was no such case, because then we see that there were appearances, not just one or two appearances, but there were hundreds and hundreds of appearances. Not hundreds of appearances, but appearances to hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, under the Old Testament law, only two or three witnesses were required to to settle the factuality of a thing. And if you just glance, for instance, at verses 5 through 8, well, then that's more than two or three to establish the legal factuality that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. Fatally t fatal torment, empty tomb, appearances, and the last one was transformation. How do you explain not only the entire world, all of Western civilization, but so many lives just like ourselves being utterly transformed by the power of the gospel if it's just an historical fiction? All of that would be really great to preach on, but I'm not going to do it. Because ultimately, the Corinthian church didn't doubt the resurrection of Christ. They hadn't rejected the resurrection of Christ. They didn't deny the resurrection. In verse 2, notice that they believe in both the death of Christ and His resurrection from the dead. And so it's clear from verse 1 and verse 2, and if you glance down at verse 11, that they were quite clear on the apostolic testimony. It was the testimony upon which the church in Corinth had been built. And so their difficulty was not with the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the first place. Their difficulty, verse 12, and we'll get to this in, the, in, in next week. Their difficulty, verse 12, was with their own resurrection from the dead. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead, speaking of their own resurrection? Some Christians in Corinth doubted their own future resurrection. And this wasn't for intellectual reasons like modern-day skeptics or the radical liberal theologians of our day. Their reasons for doubting were much more spiritual. They believed that they were risen with Christ already, and that's true. Just keep a finger here. Turn to your right just a few pages to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, here elsewhere, he writes this, beginning in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." that I suppose most of us haven't realized that we've arrived in heaven already. But in a proper sense, we're already living in Christ just as if we are living in Denton or wherever it is that you live. 
that our spiritual life daily comes from his heavenly throne. His heavenly life pumps through our veins, so to speak. Paul makes the exact same point elsewhere, just a couple of books later, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. He says in verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised, well then seek the things that are above. Notice that this is the description of a Christian. That you've been raised with Christ. And so this is one way the believers are described in the New Testament, that we've been raised from the dead. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive with Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Corinthians were very much alive, spiritually speaking, and they knew it. They knew they had been raised with Christ. And we've seen in previous chapters that they were a, a gifted young church. Through the new birth, they had They had tasted immortality. They knew that in Christ, they were already victorious over death. They had resurrection life, His resurrection life in their own life. And they were rejoicing in that experience. And as far as the fact of their deaths were concerned, they all knew that one day they were going to die, but they weren't really worried because they knew that death couldn't separate them from Christ. Amen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The only thing that death could do, they thought, verse 12, is separate their souls from their bodies. And to Greeks like them, that would be a wonderful thing. Because the body is a terrible vessel. It's so often the body that holds us back or drags us down, often in sin. And so they figure that when they died, they finally got to leave that dastardly material world in this material body, and they could go on to eternal life with God in Christ as a disembodied soul. So death was a welcome prospect. And so in this regard, they weren't like our radical liberal theologians of the day. They confessed Christ. They knew the the hope of heaven. But their issue came from a different perspective altogether. That resurrection life in this life, they assumed, was as good as resurrection life gets. So Paul, as you remember, all the way back in chapter 6 and elsewhere, rebuked them because of the fruits of this theology. It had practical implications in their life. They didn't think that their bodies mattered then. If their souls were saved and renewed and redeemed, then their bodies were worthless. It didn't matter. They were, their souls were going to be with God in Christ forever. Their bodies were worthless. And so Paul told them all the way back in chapter 6, you remember, that their bodies do matter, that their bodies belong to Jesus, that wherever their bodies go, Jesus goes with them. So glorify God in your bodies, he says. Their behavior was a symptom of a doctrinal disease. What was at stake in Corinth was the very gospel itself, that the church had been moved away from its original base. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, if you hold fast. Because he knows that many of them are not holding fast. He knows that some of the members in this church are not standing firm in the gospel. It's why he concludes the chapter, verse 58, which is really the the key exhortation in the entire book, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Why does he tell them to be immovable? Because they were being moved. And he is now 
like any good pastor who loves them, like a spiritual dad is moving them back to where they began. That's the goal. So beloved, what happens then if people are moved from their position? What should we do? Let's follow Paul. Because what he does here is really very simple. He says, this is where you stand now, and I want to show you where you've been moved, and the only way to show you that is to show you what your original position was. So he compares where they are not with where they were five or six years before when he first visited them. And it's here that we now... Having moved past the context, dive more specifically into our passage. Notice in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, he calls them brothers. There is no doubt that this is a Christian church, even though they're drifting into error. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you, just as he has throughout the entire letter. All the way back in chapter 2, verse 1, you can take a glance at that. Notice what he says, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He keeps going back to the time when he first came to them, when he first preached the gospel to them. He says, do you remember chapter 2? Do you remember when I first came to you? Do you remember chapter chapter 15? You remember the gospel that I preached to you. He wants them to go back to the beginning. To get a clear reference to when they first believed the gospel so that they might be able to better discern how they've moved away from it. Of course, how could Paul forget that time? How could he forget coming to one of the first civilized cities in the ancient Greek world, to Corinth? Athens may have been superior in its intellectual life, But they were superior in nothing else, if only in that way. In size, in commerce, importance, and influence, Corinth stood supreme in Greece. And so how could Paul forget arriving there? How could he forget the founding of this little Christian church in a place with so much influence? How could he forget being thrown out of the synagogue and then just walking out, going next door to preach to the Gentiles in the house of the leader of the synagogue who had just been converted by his preaching? How could he forget that? And how could he forget that vision in the middle of the night when he was just about to give up and panic and go away and the Lord stood with him and said, fear not, I am with you and I have many people in this city. How could he forget? How could he forget that instead of going on to another city as he so often did to preach the gospel, he stayed for one and a half years with these dear saints to teach them and love them and pastor them and nurture them and care for them. How could he forget? There's no way he could forget. And they couldn't forget either. For what a difference the gospel had made in their lives. Turn all the way back to chapter 1. Look at what happened that a real church had been born. (laughs) It was a real miracle in Corinth of all places. You can't give up on any city in the entire world for the gospel's sake if you believe that God can plant a church in Corinth. So whether it's Denton or Dallas or San Francisco or Shanghai or wherever it is, you can never get up on a, give up on a city. If God can plant a church in Corinth, He can plant a church anywhere. And oh, what a church this is. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge 
even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful to whom you are called and to the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is a rich community of Christians. There's no way they would have forgotten the day that they were planted. There's no way they would have forgotten the day that the Apostle Paul walked into that city and began to preach. There's no way that they would have forgotten the gospel that he preached to them. And so he takes them back in chapter 15 to remember that great day. He wants them to remember the gospel that was preached the gospel that they had believed, the gospel on which they now take their stand, and the gospel by which they are now being delivered, the gospel by which they had been called, the gospel by which they had been justified, and the gospel by which they are now being sanctified. If, you see that there in verse 2? If, oh, that's an ominous if. If they hold fast. Your eternal life and mine depend upon our continued grace-aided faith. There is no continued faith in Jesus Christ in our lives, then we have to question whether or not we've ever received it from Him to begin with. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be times in our lives where our faith is weak as opposed to strong. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be times in our lives, as Adam so helpfully preached uh, recently, there's, not, there's going to be times where we're going to have doubt. Seems sometimes more doubt even than assurance. There's going to be times where trials crash against us. There's going to be times where our own sins just seem so great in us and around us. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, all those who are called by God's grace, according to His eternal decree of election, will persevere. Because Christ even now prays for us. Just as he did the Apostle Peter. Peter, I prayed for you. Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And he prays for us now. It's part of his intercessory role at the right hand of the Father. Exalted as high priest. Praying for us. Securing us such that even in the lowest of the low days that we experience, we will not ultimately and finally abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet one of the means that He provides to keep us faithful in the gospel is reminders and warnings like this. We saw this time and again when we worked through the book of Hebrews together, didn't we? Don't drift from Christ. Don't stop running. Keep running. Paul's doing the same thing. That I may have great spiritual experiences in the past, that I might enjoy great proximity to God's Word and God's people. I might be in and around the church for any amount of time. But my assurance and salvation ultimately depends on none of those. It hinges ultimately on the final work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ and of me receiving Him by faith and continuing to rest in Him just as I received Him. Today, and again tomorrow, and again the day after that. So he's saying, if you hold fast, point one, verses one and two, keep believing the gospel. Don't stop believing. So ashamed of myself. 
But the question that we need to ask is, am I resting in Christ today? Just as I once received Him by faith when I first heard the gospel. Am I still resting and standing in the gospel today or have I been moved? The Apostle Paul wants them to ask that question. And the Holy Spirit inspiring the pen of the Apostle Paul would have us ask the same. Am I holding fast to the gospel? Am I still standing in the thing, in the gospel that I received? Or have I been moved? Beloved, we need to commit ourselves to a ministry of gospel reminding. When young churches are young churches founded on the gospel, they're often zealous for the gospel, totally zeroed in on the gospel. But when young churches become older churches, even 10-year-old churches, there's always a risk of moving away from the gospel in which they stand. And that's true of every church. It doesn't need generations. It doesn't need decades. Sometimes it might take a matter of months or even years. For something that seems so promising to begin to wither. For a well-established church to begin doing and teaching things that seem to subtly shift them from the gospel. One Sunday after another, one month and year after another until a number of years go by and you look back and you go, what happened? How many churches that were once well-known for the gospel just a handful of years ago have since moved off the gospel as the main thing and have made not main things now the main thing? That the gospel has been shelved or sidelined and now that church is totally focused and obsessed with the implications of the gospel as if those are the gospel themselves. That's why Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel Peter wrote the same thing in 2 Peter 1, quote, I intend to always remind you. Why do we need to be reminded of the glorious gospel in our preaching every Lord's Day? Why do we take the Lord's Supper every time that we gather? Why do we do this? It's because we're forgetful. We forget the gospel. A number of us are going to leave here today and you're going to begin thinking about your fantasy football team, or you're going to be thinking about dinner, you're going to be thinking about that thing you got to do for work on Monday, and next thing you know it, the gospel is gone in one ear and possibly out the other. We're so forgetful and so we need to hear it over and over and over again. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of in our preaching every Lord's Day, we need to preach the gospel. And we come together in our one another groups and our fellowship groups as we aim to practice hospitality and encourage one another. We need to speak the gospel, remind the gospel. That's what we need to do. Because it takes very little for us to move off of it. Just as we see that the Corinthians moving off of it. So what's at stake? The Apostle Paul in verses 1 and 2 say the gospel's at stake. What then is the gospel? Well, beginning in verses 3 through verse 5, we see that Paul's going to explain it in a very simple form, an early confession as it were, and he takes us back to the earliest years of the church. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now notice, Verse 1, they were the recipients. Verse 3, Paul's the recipient. Paul's saying, listen, I'm you received what I delivered to you, and what I delivered to you is what I received, and what I received ultimately was from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And that's the good news that we see following. There's two basic points that we see in the passages that follow. Notice both of them are going to be outlined by the phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. The first is that Christ died for our sins. 
Christ died for our sins. He really, truly died, and that's evident from the fact that he was buried. The second point is that he was raised on the third day. Buried people, raised bodily from the dead, and he was raised on the third day, notice this, in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, no doubt the apostles had in their own mind a variety of Old Testament passages that caused them to see in Christ the fulfillment, the yes and amen of God's promises, whether it might be the Passover lamb or the types and shadows and the priestly ministry or the offering of, uh, or the offering on the day of atonement, or even the promise, for instance, in Psalm 110 that, 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 uh, that David, that the Davidic king would not see corruption. In the book of Acts, the apostles lean heavy on Psalm 110 to prove that Christ was raised bodily from the dead. He's going, all of this is in accordance with the Scriptures. I think there are lots of things that we could say about the death and resurrection of Christ. We'll have lots of time for that in the coming weeks. I'm not going to be able to go into all of them today. And I hope that that's the emphasis every time we gather of the preaching of the Word. It centers on, the, on Christ crucified and, and raised again. But I do want you to notice that both of these make up the gospel. The gospel is not the death of Christ without the resurrection. If you stop reading 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, you might get that impression. Because there, the apostle Paul was determined to know nothing among them but Christ crucified. But neither is the gospel the resurrection of Christ without his death. You might get that impression as you read through the book of Acts and see how the apostles focus so much on the fact that Christ rose from the dead as God promised in Psalm 110, as I mentioned, and other places. But here it is in 1 Corinthians 15 that we have an authentic statement that the original gospel consists of two things that happened at the end of his life. And I want you to notice that Jesus' merciful acts and his Earthly ministry are not part of the gospel. His moral teaching is not part of the gospel. It's not because those are unrelated to the gospel, but they are not themselves the gospel. The gospel is concerned with his obedient death for our sins and his bodily resurrection on the third day, full stop. That's the heart of the gospel. Let me put it another way. The gospel of Jesus Christ centers on a single event occurring in two stages. First, Christ died for our sins, and second, he was raised from the dead. They are inseparable parts of the same redemptive event. At least that's how the Apostle Paul sees it in Romans chapter 4 when he wrote, Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He can't speak about one without the other. One event, two phases, two parts, all for our deliverance and reconciliation and justification. So the Christian experience won for us by the cross of Christ is not the full experience that God intends for us to have. At the cross, indeed, the Lord Jesus paid for the penalty of our sins. But that is not all that God intends for us in the gospel. He also intends that you and I experience not only the pen, uh, freedom from the penalty of our sins, but that we would experience true and genuine freedom from the power of our sin as well in our everyday life. And that one day when we're bodily raised, 
As Jesus was bodily raised, we're going to be free not only from the power of sin, not only from the penalty of sin, but we're going to be freed in that day from the very presence of sin once and for all. In other words, the blessings of the gospel are a new reconciled life with God now and a restored body and a future resurrection. And you cannot separate one from the other without denying the gospel. He says, this is the gospel. And so I wondered, as I was just thinking through this, do we preach the resurrection as often as we preach the cross? And do we preach them together as often as we're able? And if we don't, why don't we? Why do we, why do we tend, I think, in many of our evangelical churches, why do we tend to be so heavy on the cross but maybe light on the resurrection? And maybe partly because we're hesitant to talk about heaven and the world to come. That seems so far off and ethereal and ambiguous. It may also be because we are often unhelpfully obsessed with the here and now practical. Don't give me all that doctrine, just tell me what to do. Whatever the reason might be, if we don't teach the heart of the gospel in the resurrection of Christ and of our bodily resurrection and like kind, then we live a very big gap with very real consequences for our Christian life because into that resurrection gap, there will be different kinds of teaching and teachers that will come in with all kinds of resurrection substitutes, convincing us of this thing or that as to why it will, be, it will lead to our best life now and not in the life to come. 1 Corinthians 15 has an important message for evangelical churches today. It has an important message for our church. It reminds us of what the full gospel is. It tells us that for all the blessings and the benefits that we've received from Christ's death and resurrection, they won't all be ours until the life to come. We enjoy some now, we enjoy some then when it's consummated. It has now been inaugurated, it is one day going to be consummated and fulfilled. And that, we, that means that we shall always be to some extent dissatisfied with what we have now in this life, in this world, with our bodies. And to those of us who hold not only the bodily resurrection of Christ, but our future resurrection, that doesn't perplex us or discourage us because Christ's resurrection tells us that our best life is never on this side of heaven. It's always on the other. You may recall that these Corinthians believed that they already possessed everything. We already have everything that we want. We are already rich. We're already kings. Back in chapter 4. And if you believe that as they did, and as some people still do today, then you're going to remain puzzled by the trials and the disappointments that you will inevitably experience. You're going to go, hey, why is this happening to me? Aren't I a child of God? Don't go there. Instead, remember what the Apostle Paul wrote back in chapter 13, verse 12. For now we shall see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That is apostolic doctrine. My knowledge of God, His ways, His truth, and His purposes, for me it's like looking into a dim piece of metal. They didn't have mirrors like we did back then. It would just be a polished piece of metal. Which means that if I'm going to see clearly, I've got to wait until the future when Christ comes and raises us from the dead. 
If you feel that the fruit of Christ's resurrection is to give perfect knowledge now, perfect experiences now, then you're always going to be looking for some new gift of knowledge or some other kind of supernatural experience because it should be yours now. You're going to fall prey to what we might call an overrealized eschatology of taking that which God has promised on the other side of Christ's return and importing it into the present in a way that gives no attention to the future and wants it all now. Namely, what it means is that the blessings that will be fully realized after death at our bodily resurrection, we might say, should be experienced in one way or another in this life. That's an overrealized eschatology. But we see that's plainly contrary to apostolic teaching. So, what then is an authentic experience? What is it? What does it mean to have new life in Christ through the gospel? For God to be at work in us by His grace, Paul's going to go on to explain that in verses 8 to the end of verse 11. Last of all, he says, Christ appeared to all of these, but last of all, to one untimely born, He also appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. For by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you also believed. It may seem for a moment when you read through that paragraph that the Apostle Paul has gotten somewhat of a big head. I worked harder than the rest of them. Old big-headed Paul, always talking about himself. You know, avoid that guy at parties. But that's not what he's saying. The language that he's using here in verse 8 and following is very precise. And every phrase is intended because Paul knows the Corinthians are disappointed in him. They've become discouraged by his ministry. They've begun to doubt his apostolic credentials under the teaching of so-called super apostles and other false teachers. That Paul has fallen out of favor and with Paul also his message. Can we really trust him? Is he really an apostle? He doesn't seem to have, the, have had the proper experience of Christ right now risen power, at least the kind that some of the false teachers were tempting them to believe. So they're out of sorts with Paul because now he's rebuked them and they don't really like that very much. Also, they've picked up a lot of doubts about his ministry. And so you remember they were still really young in the gospel's work in the Mediterranean world and so his ministry is no doubt a popular topic of conversation and not everyone was so confident in Paul's credentials. False teachers were tirelessly undermining his apostolic life and doctrine. They were constantly building their own platforms on his back even while he was in prison. And you can almost hear their voices in verse, in verse 8 as one untimely born. That's an old medical phrase for an abortion. He wasn't a, a proper apostle at all. He hadn't come in the right way. He hadn't met the risen Christ like Peter and James and the rest of them and didn't walk with him and talk with him during his earthly ministry. Oh, he claims to have met Christ on the Damascus Road. But I mean, you know who, know, who really knows? In any case, wasn't he also a persecutor of the church? How can anyone who is the church's most bitter enemy possibly be an apostle? Forgiven, maybe, but a great leader, much more an apostle? Nah, forget about that. But notice that Paul here doesn't deny any of it. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't justify himself. He, he owns every bit of it. 
That's the first thing that grace does. I'm going to show you three. But the first thing that grace does is it lowers our estimations of ourselves. By remembering what he'd been, he'd kept himself humble before God and before others. And that's the first thing that grace does. He's able to own every one of it. And grace enables us to do the same thing. It enables us to own our past because all of our shame has been covered. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I was that way. Yeah, I talked that way. Yeah, I used my body in that way. And I'm, though ashamed of what I once did, I no longer bear that shame because of Christ. But, I, but His grace gives me the ability to own it. I don't have to make myself better than I really was. I can own my sin for what it is because grace gives me the freedom to have a lower view of myself than what my self-righteous heart is inclined to have. Because God has already pronounced judgment on me in Christ. <laughs> there is no condemnation for me in Christ. So what shame is there for me to look back at my past and go, yeah, I did that. I was a persecutor, Paul says. I did it. Untimely born, no, I didn't get to do the things the other apostles did. I'm the least of the apostles. I am unworthy, he says, to be an apostle. The first thing that grace does is it lowers our estimation of ourselves. But it does a second thing. Notice in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul was a living embodiment of his own message. His message was about the grace of God to save sinners. And God made his life an embodiment of that very message. And so the message is essentially this, just like Adam read earlier, that if God can take this man and choose this man and change this man and call and use in mighty ways this man, then God can take anybody and change anybody. That's the message of the gospel that Paul preached. All centered on the death and the resurrection of Christ. So God's grace not only lowers our estimation of ourselves, but it exalts the transforming power of God. Notice what he says. It's only because of the grace of God that I am what I am. I am an apostle, but understand, it's all because of God's unmerited favor to me. Not because of anything that I deserved. I certainly didn't deserve it. I'm unworthy of it. But it's because of God's transforming power. And so in light of his past, Paul knew everything that he was. He knew all that he had accomplished, every gift that he had possessed, all of it, everything in his life since becoming a Christian was all due to the sheer goodness of God's mercy in his life. But I want you to notice one last thing that God's grace does in verse 11. And not only lowers our estimation of ourselves, it not only exalts the transforming power of God, but finally, in verse 10, it energizes our service. That was evident by Paul's work. It's why he talks about his work. And what he says here when he says that I worked harder than any of them was not meant to be boastful. It's literally true. It's necessary for him to say it because his apostolic status is being depreciated. Now the Jerusalem apostles, they're being exalted, no doubt. But Paul is being doubted. So he's bold enough to literally say, I worked harder. If you were to translate it literally, I worked harder than all of them put together is essentially the sense of the passage. 
In the six or seven years before he put his pen to paper to write this letter to this church, he had evangelized the provinces of Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and was actively evangelizing Proconsul Asia and all those parts of Asia that were Roman. That's what it's referring to. And by the time two or three years pass after writing this letter, he will regard the whole area around the entire Aegean Sea as being evangelized. Yes, literally. As a matter of fact, it is to Paul that we owe the evangelization of the Roman world. I worked harder than all of them put together. He had done more than all the other apostles. And he makes it very plain, both before and after, that this had nothing to do with him. It was the grace of God in him. God did that. Paul is showing us from his own life what it means to have the power and the grace of God in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that, you need to, that you're going to necessarily be used by God in an apostolic way to give the gospel to all the United States, so he might be pleased to use you to convert many, many people. Praise God if that's the case. I hope so. But the main principle is this. And if you're taking notes, this would be a helpful thing to write down. But the main point is this, that the power and grace of God in your life is not shown by great experiences, but by great energy given to the work of the gospel. The power and the grace of God in your life is not shown by great experiences, but by great energy given to the work of the gospel. That may not look like Paul. Paul had a unique calling on his own life as a faithful member in the church of learning the gospel that you might uphold the gospel and helping other brothers and sisters in the church to persevere in their faith by reminding them of the gospel, of being courageous and faithful to speak the gospel with your neighbors and in your family and perhaps even in your workplaces as God opens the door for the gospel in all of these different ways for the building of the church and the salvation of sinners. Those who have been captured by the gospel have great energy from the Spirit to do work of the gospel. And we're all going to be gifted in different ways, used by God in different ways. And because it's all from the grace of God, we don't look around and measure ourselves against one another. We celebrate every piece of evidence of His grace, every, every fruit of the gospel that, that shows up in our church and outside of our church, and we celebrate it. We don't go, why did he get five and I got one fruit? We go, six fruit, 20 fruit, lots of fruit. Let's celebrate all the fruit because it doesn't have, have anything to do with us. It's God's grace doing that, giving us a zeal to labor for the gospel, to speak it and to labor in as we pursue holy lives and seek the salvation of our family and friends. And then he bears fruit through the power of his Holy Spirit as he calls those who are his to himself. And we get to celebrate that. Look at what God's grace did to us. <laughs> who are we? We're unworthy of that. He goes, this is how we know that we're not running in vain. It's not merely that we've prayed a prayer. It's not merely that we've had an experience. It's that as we continue to rest in Christ alone for salvation, we are increasingly energized for the work of the gospel in and outside of the church. It's the fruit of the gospel in our lives. And so the devil loves to trick the church into believing that being filled with the Spirit is more or less a matter of experience and feeling and worship and so on, but Paul here doesn't think so. To Paul, the evidence of being filled with the grace of God and being energized by the Holy Spirit is that you get your hands dirty in the work of the gospel. That's just what it means to be a Christian and serving in the church and discipling other believers and raising up our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord and supporting missionaries and, and going as missionaries and, and a whole host of variety of things that we might do. That verse 12, it means to be a church that preaches the same gospel that Paul 
and the other apostles preached. So that others are brought by the same grace of God to repent and believe in it. But if we're going to do that, beloved, verse 2, then we have to stand firm. We have to hold fast. We cannot get distracted. It's too easy that we've got to keep the main thing, the main thing all the time, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Him crucified and of Him raised. Amen? We cannot get off center. All kinds of implications flow out of that. All kinds of related things to Christian discipleship flow out of that. That's the heart. You remove the heart, the whole body dies. We cannot be moved on that. We need to preach what they preached so that sinners might be saved. As Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day, just as God said He would. Pray with me.